0: Hello, and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. In this episode, we'll explore how governments and incarceration facilities dealt with massive increases in the number of people they were expected to house without corresponding budget increases. We'll cover everything from sky-high commissary fees, the state charging prisoners for their room and board, and even work conditions within prison. America's prison system is massive, the largest in the world. We've talked about this phenomenon in earlier episodes. Within the last half century, millions of Americans have spent time behind bars. But when mass incarceration began, America didn't have the space to house such large numbers of people. When America's incarcerated population began to skyrocket, jails and prisons became unsustainably overcrowded. In many cases, the number of people held in facilities vastly exceeded their maximum design capacity. And as recently as 2016, the state of Alabama reportedly held more than 24,000 people in a facility with a capacity of 12,000. Overcrowding created serious issues in prison facilities whose resources could not sustain the number of incarcerated people. Issues with sanitation, lack of funding for medical and counseling programs, and plumbing issues posed serious health threats for incarcerated people. Cramped prison conditions also led to prison riots, both as a result of increased tension between people living in such close quarters and as an expression of frustration with conditions in the prisons. The most famous of these riots was the Attica Prison Riot in 1971. This riot occurred in response to conditions at the prison. 29 incarcerated people and 10 officers died over the course of five days. More recently, in California, an incarcerated man was beaten to death in a prison gymnasium that had been converted into a massive dormitory in response to overcrowding. The conditions were especially grim. Prison officers did not notice, and his body was left on the floor for hours. Throughout the 80s and the 90s, courts ordered prisons to address overcrowding, and states came under serious pressure to improve conditions of incarceration. Legislators chose to address the increase in prison population by building new facilities to house increasing numbers of long-stay prisoners. As we will discuss in future episodes, the choice to build new facilities reflects a shift in American attitudes towards crime. Politicians and the general public began to favor harsh, extremely lengthy prison sentences. The hope was that, by isolating people who had committed crimes from the rest of society for as long as possible, the crime rate would decrease since people who committed crimes would be locked away. As multiple studies have shown, there's no clear relationship between incarceration and the crime rate. In other words, there's no proof that sentencing people to long stints in prison protects communities or makes the public safer. Still, as the mass incarceration crisis strained the capacity of American prisons, prison construction boomed. With the incarcerated population boom came increased construction costs for facilities, rising costs of cleaning those facilities, increased costs of hiring staff, providing food, and providing medical services. The growing economic market that all these services represented created new opportunities for corporations to profit. In the 1970s, political commentators and social theorists came up with a term to describe this new market, the prison industrial complex. Journalist Eric Schlosser described the phenomenon, saying three decades after the war on crime began, the United States has developed a prison industrial complex, a set of bureaucratic, political and economic interests that encourage increased spending on imprisonment, regardless of the actual need. To put it another way, the prison system provides unique opportunities for public officials and private groups to profit from incarcerated people. As you might expect, when mass incarceration developed, it was incredibly expensive for the government. Increased numbers of facilities, increased numbers of incarcerated people, and lengthening sentences meant that the states had to spend more money on corrections. When courts required states to improve their conditions of incarceration in response to overcrowding, costs only grew. Even when the federal government has supplied funding to the states for the construction of prisons, that funding has not kept pace with escalating levels of incarceration. But, in individual states, taxpayers opposed spending more money on prison construction. In the 1980s, Americans voted against 60% of local referenda for jail bonds, which would fund jail construction in the community. Across the country, tough-on-crime rhetoric swayed Americans, who voted in favor of punitive justice policies. But those same voters consistently voted against increased spending on jails, facilities, and programs to house and support the growing incarcerated population. While some states obscured prison-building costs through financial sleights of hand, like using special types of bonds that don't require taxpayer approval, tough-on-crime politics seemingly resulted in a logistical nightmare. Both the local and federal government had to do more with less money. You might wonder how incarceration facilities solved this financial conundrum. How were they able to do more with less money? Federal, state, and local governments used three major strategies to address these rising costs they cut costs within facilities, they subcontracted prison operations, and they profited from incarcerated people. We're going to explore each of those tactics in depth. First, let's talk about cost-cutting. As the United States became increasingly harsh on crime, conditions in prisons slowly deteriorated. During the Great Recession, the effort to cost-cut intensified, and policymakers cut education, substance abuse, and work training programs designed to rehabilitate incarcerated people. But the cuts weren't just limited to rehabilitative programs. In fact, the single largest amount of spending within prisons is actually on prison staff. Prison employment unions consistently report that as mass incarceration has developed, the number of staff has not increased at the same rate that the prison population grew. This mismatch makes managing facilities much more difficult. Finally, as a clear indication that increased rates of incarceration don't correlate with increased rates of spending, most of the states with the highest imprisonment rates also have the lowest operating costs per person incarcerated. That means the states that incarcerate the most spend the least on every single person that they've incarcerated. Cost-cutting decreases the quality of life inside prisons, but there's very little oversight of prison facilities. There are no independent organizations that monitor prison conditions, no national standards on reporting safety, health, and abuse within the American correctional system, and no mandatory federal requirements to report indicators of health and well-being, like assault rates, within prisons. In fact, fewer than half of America's prisons are accredited by the American Correctional Association, and the standards that prisons need to attain to become accredited through that system are entirely nominal. Accreditation is a really low ask, and we aren't even getting that. The American court system where lawsuits can be brought regarding conditions of incarceration is essentially the only system of oversight, and those types of lawsuits are really difficult to bring successfully. In this way, the American prison system is utterly exceptional. Our European peers have robust oversight mechanisms, and groups can inspect prisons unannounced. Today, America has engaged in a budget-slashing experiment in its prisons at the cost of the health, safety, and well-being of incarcerated people. As the second step to address budget issues of prisons, policymakers turned to prison privatization. At the same time that mass incarceration began to occur in the U.S., the government started to rely on the private sector to provide a wide range of services, from ambulances to road construction. In response to the increased costs of government services and the perception that the government offered those services inefficiently, legislators in the 1980s, especially President Ronald Reagan, promoted this shift. Suddenly, a variety of incarceration-related tasks formerly handled by the federal government, from policing to probation, were bid on by private companies. The government would pay these companies a set fee to provide services, the idea being that the amount the government paid would be significantly less than what they currently spent on the same services, at the exact same quality. Privately-owned prisons provide the most explicit example of this trend. Private prisons are owned by for-profit corporations. These corporations either build prison facilities or buy prisons that were formerly state-owned. These prisons can hold incarcerated people from almost any state, regardless of the prison's actual location. State and federal governments pay the company a set fee per person held in the facility, presumably less than it would cost the government to hold the person during the length of their sentence. Although private prisons hold only 8% of America's incarcerated population, they are one of the most controversial topics in prison reform circles. Some people believe that private facilities have even less transparency than publicly owned facilities. Others say that for-profit companies have even greater incentives to cut corners, reducing staff in the facilities and cutting programs. These claims depend on the facility in question. Some private prisons offer desirable programming and coursework, while others have fewer educational options than state facilities. Private prisons also provide a quick route to reduce overcrowding in public facilities, since private companies can house overflow population and quickly leverage the capital necessary to construct new detention centers. Perhaps the most consistent critique leveled against private prisons is a moral one. Many reformers claim that it's inherently immoral or unjust to administer justice on a for-profit basis. In other words, they argue that private prisons incentivize mass incarceration. Regardless of your moral position on private prisons, the fact remains that they profit directly off of incarceration. These corporations hire firms to lobby Congress and state legislatures in support of prison privatization. The majority of private prisons also have in their contracts something known as a minimum occupancy agreement. When the state signs a contract with a private prison, the contract typically guarantees that a certain number of incarcerated people will be housed in the space for the duration of the contract. If this minimum number of people is not held in the prison, the company will be paid the same amount as if the minimum number of beds are full. In this way, private prison contracts incentivize having a certain minimum number of people arrested and convicted of crimes, making punishment financially practical for the state. These minimum occupancy rates range from 80 to 100%, with 90% occupancy as the average. That's really high. But, the privatization of prison operations extends far beyond the reach of private prisons. The government frequently chooses to contract out the operations of publicly owned prisons to private companies. These companies, the largest of which are CoreCivic and GEO Group, are paid by the government to operate jails and prisons across the country. As with private prisons, these privately operated, government-owned prisons are part of the industry of prisons, and companies lobby legislators at all levels to support their financial interests. State and federal facilities also sign contracts with private companies to provide a vast array of services within the prisons. Food service corporation Aramark, the same company that provides food to college cafeterias across the country, runs prison cafeterias. According to Aramark's website, quote, food, facility, and commissary operations maintain a significant role in maintaining the peace. Phone companies also sign contracts with prisons and jails the facility will grant a monopoly on telephone service to the service provider who makes the most attractive bid. That provider can then charge incredibly high rates for phone calls. Although some regulators push to cap the price of these phone calls, the cost of phone calls from prisons still frequently exceeds a dollar a minute. This high cost makes it prohibitively expensive for families and incarcerated people to stay in contact when a loved one is being held in a distant or out-of-state facility. Privately-owned companies make approximately $1.2 billion each year from phone calls in prisons. Saquon R. Merritt, a justice reform advocate, entrepreneur, businessman, and formerly incarcerated person, described to me some of the difficulties of calling his family. Specifically, he told me a little bit about the high prices that are charged for phone calls within prison.
1: The, the charges are ridiculous. I mean, you, you know, you have about... One dollar a phone call. Um, you know, I, you, you get on the phone, you got one one phone, what we call our clips, but they are intervals of uh, 30 minute intervals of phone conversation Then the phone hangs up and then you have to call back. Um, those are a dollar every time. So if we got an hour and a half um, out for recreation, if I decide to spend that hour and a half talking to my family, mm-hmm. then, you know, you would have <laughs> you have. Ten phones on a tier with about thirty, forty guys. Mm-hmm. So you got ten phones, thirty, forty guys. You know, and you you really don't have that. Sometimes you don't have that luxury because you have to be considerate. Everyone yeah. that wants to speak to their family. And um, so if I get if I get that chance, I may talk. I may talk once or twice. It's two dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's two dollars every recreation, maybe. Yeah. So it's like six dollars a day. So you, you think that's uh about uh, seven days a week, six hours a day. That's about forty two dollars a week, which equates to four terms, that's about one one sixty 160, uh one sixty eight. If I'm not mistaken, one sixty eight a month, just on phone calls. And um, you know I was, and our families, you know, they do so much to pull together that money, you know, for, for you to be able to, to to reach out and speak to them. Because they know you, you need that. That's that's a peace that you have. That's a way of you escaping from being where you are. When you're on that phone, you're outside. Mm-hmm. You know, some some brothers, you know, some brothers say, man, don't get caught up on that phone because you can get caught up on that phone. Mm-hmm. And then when you detach from the phone, it's kind of like, you know, it, it can be a stress because you would just... Out there, you hear people in the background, a thing, and then you hang up and you realize it brings back into perspective where you are.
0: I also had a chance to speak with Marcus Lilly, a college student, community outreach coordinator for the nonprofit Coalition of Friends, mentor, public speaker, formerly incarcerated person, and self-proclaimed advocate for transformation, about some of the difficulties he faced while calling home.
2: Phone calls are pretty high. And um, because of what a, I was getting paid. At my jobs, which was a dollar a day, Um, when I get paid, it barely, that's my hygiene and my little food for the week. It may be $30. The commissary is so high that, you know, they overcharge most incarcerated citizens. For a deodorant that may cost a dollar out here, it may be $2.50 in there. So once you finish with your hygiene, you really don't have enough money to put on the phone to call your family members. Uh your family members have the option to put money on the phone from the outside so you can call them on their uh their uh money, but as we both know, you know, it's a struggle for everybody. You know, my family isn't really financially stable, so oftentimes I wouldn't they wouldn't have money to put on the phone, so I would go weeks and months without talking to my son or talking to my mother or talking to my brother and but when I did get on the phone it was it would be an escape you know I would love to talk to him, but it's really not it's really not set up for you to be able to talk to your family every day unless they it's definitely well off. You know, he got enough money to put on it every week because it's, um, it's, it's like a dollar for 30 minutes. So $30 is 30 phone calls. And then in the phone calls, sometimes they get cut off. I always thought it was, I, I, maybe I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but like when you're in the middle of your phone call, it would just cut off and it wouldn't be your family members' connection. Like, it wouldn't go out. When you call them back, they were like, why the phone cut up? Like, I don't know, it just cut up. You know, I've, I've seen that a lot during my incarceration.
0: There's also a huge market of companies that manufacture special items for jails and prisons. Facilities purchase these items to sell in commissaries and for use by staff and incarcerated people. Companies sell bendable electronic cigarettes, special technology to find cell phones that have been smuggled into prisons, transport vans, even a special flexible pencil marketed as the, quote, maximum security orange flexible pencil, which the manufacturer's website brags, twists, bends, and can even be tied in a knot. This pencil may bend but cannot break, significantly reducing the risk that it could be used as a weapon. The manufacturing and sale of these items to facilities represents a significant market in and of itself. Moreover, the companies that create these items are publicly traded, bringing in a second level of investment and financial benefit from mass incarceration. The provision of items to commissaries and jails brings us to the third way that policymakers address the rising cost of prisons. They extract value from incarcerated people. This third tactic manifests in many different ways. The items sold in commissaries, for instance, are sold to incarcerated people at a very steep rate. Basic items like cereal and canned soup can cost five times the retail price, recouping extremely high profits for the facility or the private company that runs the commissary. Commissary companies actually earn $1.6 billion every year by selling these products. The items available for purchase in prison facilities are often vitally important for incarcerated people. In the race-to-cost cut, many prison facilities have decreased their food budgets, giving incarcerated people smaller and smaller meals. Some facilities spend a mere 15 cents per individual meal, leading some incarcerated people to lose weight at dangerous rates. The meals one federal civil rights lawsuit claimed were, quote, not even enough to fill a five-year-old child. Incarcerated people turn to the upcharge items in the prison commissary, relying on friends and family to send funds that they can use to purchase upcharged ramen and soup or using their own minimal wages from work programs. Other services that allow incarcerated people to stay in contact with their loved ones, including phone and video chat services, are priced far beyond the amount that a person can earn while incarcerated. The service providers and commissaries, then, count on an incarcerated person's friends and family to send money into the prison to be spent on their products. Incarcerated people represent a perfect captive market. Since facilities provide monopolistic contracts to private companies, there is no competition between various commissaries or service providers, and no incentives to keep prices low. In other words, incarcerated people have no options either they spend money at the commissary or they don't spend money at all. You might say that incarcerated people could manage to get by without using these services or buying commissary food. But as I mentioned earlier, federal lawsuits reveal that that's not really the case. Many people incarcerated today rely on food from commissaries because they just cannot get enough calories from the meals that the facility provides. Similarly, one of the strongest indicators of long-term success after returning to society is maintaining relationships with friends and family who can support you once you leave incarceration. Here's what Mark Howard, professor at Georgetown University and director of Georgetown's Prisons and Justice Initiative, had to say about the importance of relationships for people re-entering society.
3: So I think there are two key ingredients to success after re-entry. First is family strong family ties, including friends, people who are supportive, people who are going to help contribute to them being on a positive path, not obviously going back to the same kind of trouble that they might have been in before. But a a positive influence and connection to family is really important. And then the second is education and programming, job skills, training, the preparation to be able to reenter and to do something with their lives. It's so powerful. There's a lot of research and data on this it reduces recidivism by 43 percent to have some type of higher education while in prison but I've seen it with my own eyes in, in individual human beings the effect that it has just to to think for themselves to question to debate to you know, make counter arguments to have their opinion be you know part of a conversation it's something many people never had in the first chance at going through school and suddenly they discover that they are intelligent, that they have something to say, they have something to learn to contribute, they're eager to learn and that is a life skill that helps them tremendously when they get out. And so I think family and education are really the two main things.
0: If phone calls and video calls are priced at a point where almost no one within the prison can afford them, We're setting everyone in that facility up for long-term failure, and we're isolating incarcerated people from those who care about them the most. Those kind of measures just aren't going to help people succeed during or after incarceration. Tune back in to part two of this episode to learn how private companies increased their financial stake in prisons.